0: I'd like to welcome you this morning to Brian Bible Church. Appreciate you being here with us this morning. We're continuing our study in the Book of Jude. Getting real close to the end. I'm thinking one more week. Next week should be our last week. Should be. I'm not guaranteeing anything, you know, but should be our last week here. Um, we've been studying this book for a while, and hopefully you understand by now that this book is dealing with the subject of apostasy. Apostasy is a turning away from the faith. Could be a believer, could be a non-believer. A believer who, non-believer who attaches themselves to the outward demonstrations of Christianity but later falls away, that's not really a big deal. It's good when make-believers leave, but for believers it's a big deal when they walk away from the faith. And we're going to talk more about that and, and what to do when we know someone who is walking away from the faith. So, in this book, Jude has been dealing with apostates all the way down through verse 16. He's been talking about their judgment, talking about the characteristics, just giving us some insight. And then in verse 17, we see a shift, and he says, but you, beloved, he says, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord, Yeshua the Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. So Jude says, remember what the apostles told you. The apostles said, this is going to happen. People are going to fall away from the faith. You can count on it. There's going to be false teachers. They're going to infiltrate Christian organizations. They're going to be in Christian ministries and Christian schools and colleges and seminaries, denominations. And they're in there and they're going to teach their false doctrine. They're going to wreak havoc. They're going to cause disunity in these organizations. We need to know how to spot them. We need to know how to deal with them. Then in verse 20, again, he dresses believers and he tells them how to avoid apostasy, how to stay strong. He says, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, to build ourselves up, we talked about this in length, it's to be edified by the Word of God. Our most holy faith is sound doctrine. It's the truth that's revealed in the Scripture. He's saying, you want to be strong, you've got to know the Word of God. You've got to spend time in it, you've got to read it so you can know it. You will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord as you spend time in the Word of God. And secondly, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. That is living a life dependent upon the Spirit of God. As you're building yourself up, as you're studying, reading the Scriptures, you are dependent upon the Spirit of God to teach you, to help you understand, to help you grow in His grace. He says in verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua the Christ to eternal life. Now, we saw in our study last week that keeping yourselves in the love of God is done by walking in obedience to the laws of Christ, which is the law of love. Now, in Jude 1, 20 and 21, we, there are three verbal participles here. Building, praying, and waiting. Now, most commentators feel that these modify the command to keep. In other words, Jude instructs them in three ways to keep themselves in the love of God. This is how you do it, by building yourselves up on the most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by waiting anxiously for the Lord's appearing. Now, I believe these apply to us, except the last one. I don't think we're waiting for anything anymore. Okay, the waiting is over. The waiting was for first century saints. We're not waiting. But Jude tells those first century audience that they are to be waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua the Christ to eternal life. Now, most commentators apply this exhortation to believers today. They read it. It's there. They don't change anything. They don't see any difference in time between the first century and us. Two thousand years went by. Nothing has changed. All right. They say we, you and I, Christians today ought to be waiting anxiously. Let me ask you something. Have you ever heard a sermon by anyone saying we're to be waiting for the coming of eternal life? You ever heard anybody preach that? No, they all preach like we have eternal life, but we're waiting for the Lord. Wait a second. I don't think that's what the scriptures say. All right. Waiting anxiously is the Greek verb prosdecomai. It means to wait with great expectancy. Prosdecomai is used of things future in the sense of expecting at the time you're waiting. You're waiting for it to come so you can accept it. Earnestly expecting is the idea. Prosdecomai is used of the Jews who were looking for the promised Messiah at the time of his first coming. For example, in Luke 2:25, it says there was a man in Jerusalem <clears throat> whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was looking, here's prosdecomai, he was anxiously waiting for the Messiah. Now, the present tense in our verse pictures this is one's habitual practice. You're always living your life, your whole life, eager for the Lord to come. It's amazing how people read this and they say, yep, I'm waiting for the Lord to come. He's talking here about the second coming of Christ. And he calls the second coming mercy. Now, when we see the word mercy, it's usually used of Yahweh, but here it's used of Christ. And that's nothing any different, really, because Christ is Yahweh. Yahweh is a merciful God. He is generous. He's compassionate. He's merciful. And the fact that we can even talk about any kind of salvation shows that God is a merciful God. But the mercy he's talking about here is the mercy that comes in the future at the coming of the Lord when He fulfills all the divine promises at the culmination of the Old Covenant. It's Yahweh's mercy to eternal life. So they're anxiously waiting for eternal life, which means it was future to them. They didn't have it. They waited for it. One commentator writes, It means this. Looking earnestly, earnestly expecting the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let any cold, calculating theologian or preacher throw cold water on the embers of the fire of looking for the Lord Jesus, looking for Him, perhaps today. Alright, so you don't let any cold, calculating preacher throw water on the embers of your expectation. As a preacher, last week I tried to throw some water on someone's embers of expectation or a Christian man at the gym. I approached him because I saw another guy in the gym wearing a shirt, said, coming soon, and on the back it said, Jesus. So I said to this Christian man, I know, did you see that guy's shirt? He said, yeah. I said, are you waiting for the Lord? Oh, absolutely. I said, when do you think he's coming? He said, soon. <laughs> and I said, well, let me ask you something. Didn't he tell his disciples 2,000 years ago he was coming soon? And I said, and so he's still coming soon? How does that work? And you could see the his gears start to turn. and He was a, so we dialogued for a while, and finally he goes, "I don't know. I just don't know how it can be soon then and soon now." I'm like, "Well, think about that." And I walked away <laughs> because I see him quite often, and hopefully, you know, uh, I said, "You know, we'll continue to dialogue on this." But I think I did get him thinking about it because, you know, that's Christianity is a thinking faith. Okay, you have to use your brain. The majority of Christians today, though, have checked their brain at the door, and it's just all about emotions. i got to feel good. and When you're done feeling good, you leave, and okay, that was a great pick-me-up session. It's not what it's about. It's education. For thousands of years, believers have waited for the Lord, and they're still waiting. Something's wrong. If it was soon then, it cannot be soon now if soon means anything. Another commentator tries to explain this by saying, God's mercy will also be found in the compassion of his salvation toward us when we receive our new resurrected body. So to him, receiving eternal life is getting a new body. So that's what he says. That's what he means here by eternal life. He just means we're going to get a new body someday. Another one says, It's very important to note that Jude is speaking to believers here. That is important to note. Therefore, he is not referring to salvation when he uses the words eternal life. I'd like you to find where eternal life is used when it's not talking about you know, salvation in the sense of eternal life. Salvation is used in other ways, but eternal life is not. Eternal life is given to every believer at the moment of salvation, he says. So when Jude uses the words eternal life here in verse 21, he's referring to special blessings and rewards set aside for those believers who keep themselves in the love of God. So if you work hard, you keep yourself in the love of God, you get a present at the end. You're going to get rewarded. You're going to get. And that's what he means by eternal life. Again, you can't justify that by using scripture and showing that scripture means that. Another commentator writes, "Through faith in Jesus Christ, believers already possess eternal life, but unto eternal life looks to the final manifestation of that life, consummating in final and complete conformity to the image of our Lord." See, they're all take this thing, you know, it says eternal life is something they're looking forward to in the future, and they don't know how to deal with it, so they come up with different ideas. So which is it? Did the first century believers have eternal life? Or were they waiting for eternal life? Well, the thing we have to do is, what does the Bible say about it? That would be the thing. Just go in the scripture and find out, when does the scripture say eternal life comes? Well, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 30, He says, but he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. Now watch this. And in the age to come, eternal life. What? Yeah, you want eternal life is going to come in the age to come. Not in the the age we're in, but in the age to come. Luke uses these same words in Luke 18.30. Who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Huh, that's interesting. So they thought there was a coming age, and that age was going to bring in eternal life. Now, what does Yeshua mean when he says they're going to receive eternal life in the age to come? Well, commenting on in and in the age to come, Sweet says the age which is to follow the parousia. And I agree. That's the age to come. It's the age that follows the parousia. So he is saying that no one has eternal life yet because he's a futurist. And if eternal life comes at the parousia, then nobody has it yet. That's kind of interesting. I don't think anyone, you'd have to really push to nail someone down to admit that, but that's what they're saying. I love what Weist says in his word studies on this verse about coming in eternal life. He says, The authorities are silent on all this. And the present writer confesses that he is at a loss to suggest an interpretation. The best he can do is offer the usage of the Greek words in question. That's refreshing. An honest man. I don't have a clue what this means. He's saying, how could it mean that we don't have eternal life? So he doesn't understand it. So he just says... I'm gonna tell you what the words mean. I don't know what this means together, though. And that is refreshing, you know, to just a lot of people just skip this. If you look this up in a lot of commentaries, it's not there. I mean, they just go right on to the next verse because I don't they don't know what it means. At least he's you know willing to say. As obvious and as troubling as this is to many, they just don't want to deal with it. Now understand to understand what Yeshua is saying, we need to understand. That all through the New Testament, there's two ages. There's this age, and then there's the age to come. We saw that in in our text in Mark. He says, in the present age. Guess what age that was? It was the one they were living in. The present age. The one they lived in and wrote in. And then he says this, and in the age to come. So you got two ages there. You got one they're living in, one that's to come. We see the same contrast. In Matthew 12, 32, and whoever shall speak a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age, the one we're living in right now, or in the age to come. And the the word come at the end of this verse here is the Greek word mellow. And it means about to be so we could translate to the age that's about to come about to come for who? Them, not us, the people who this verse is written to, the people who are talking here. For the original audience, the age was about to come. Look at Ephesians 121. It says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So again, we see two ages. The New Testament speaks of two ages. This age and the age to come. And the understanding of these two ages and when they change is fundamental to understanding the Scriptures and what He means by eternal life and when it's received. If you don't get this, if you don't get the two ages and when they change, you're not going to have a handle on Scripture at all. You're going to be off on so many points. And so many people, so many commentators think this age Is their age. They're still in this age. Because it says this age, so they they don't realize 2,000 years. Maybe something changed along these 2,000 years. They don't see it. The New Testament writers lived in the age they called this age. Because they were living in it. That's why they called it this age. The age to come was future to them, but it was very near. Because this age that they lived in was about to end. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. It says, Yet yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom not, however, of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So you got that age and you got rulers of that age, and the age is passing away. He goes on to say, But we speak God's wisdom. In a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age, there's those rulers again, has understood for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who are these rulers? Most people say, well, they're Jewish rulers. The Jewish rulers, they were ruling that age. They didn't know what was going on, Right. That's possible, okay, but I don't think so, all right? I think the rulers here are the watchers. I think it's the anti-Yahweh forces, spiritual forces. In a Greek translation of Daniel, a text that many scholars consider older than the Septuagint, the Prince of Persia and Israel's Prince Michael are both described with the term archon, which is the exact word it's used right here, the archon of this age. Both described that way. That's the term Paul uses here for rulers. Is he trying to tell us something? I think he is. But notice that Paul says, had the rulers of this age known, had they known what? Had they known the plan of redemption? Had they known that the plan of redemption was that the Messiah must die? If they knew that, guess what? they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. They wouldn't have killed them. They're trying to stop the plan of redemption. But by crucifying the Lord, they fulfilled the plan. They wanted to thwart the plan. They messed up. The wisdom and the rulers of this age were coming to nothing because the age was passing away. He's speaking of the spiritual archon which were about to be judged and destroyed with the Old Covenant system. The rulers would shortly have no realm to rule in because the realm was ending and they were ending. In verse uh, 11 of chapter 10, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example and are written, talking about the Old Covenant peoples, for them, an example, and they were written for our instruction. Our here is Paul and the people he's writing to. And notice what he says, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Who did the end of the age come? Upon Paul and his readers. That's who it came on, the first century saints. This age, along with its wisdom and rulers, was about to end. 1 Peter 1.20 says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Peter's saying Yeshua came during the last times. The last times of what? Of this age. That was the old covenant age. See, the old covenant age, when when they were promised a new covenant, when God came to Israel and Judah, and He said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. It's not going to be like the old covenant. I'm going to give you a new one. The old covenant then became limited. Its time was going to run out when the new covenant came. Well, we're in the new covenant there's not another covenant coming. There's not a newer new covenant. So there is no end to the age we live in. The scripture says that Yeshua came to rescue us from the present evil age. Look at Galatians 1.4. Who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from the present evil age. The evil age came to an end with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So the New Testament writers lived in what the Bible calls the present evil age. This age of the Bible is the age of the old covenant. It was about to end. It was about to pass away. Now, it should be clear to you that this age is not the Christian age. In the first century, the age of the old covenant was fading away. It would soon completely fade out and be gone. But it's amazing when you're reading commentaries, how many people say we're lived. This is the age we're living in. They they don't see any difference between that first century time and now, but they don't deal with the issues about not having eternal life either. Look at Hebrews 8, 13, when he said a new covenant, that's made the first obsolete, right? You got a new one. You don't need the whole one anymore, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and it's ready to disappear. Now, the book of Hebrews was written around 64 to 67 A.D. At this time, the Old Covenant still in effect, but he said it's about ready to pass away. And it passed away in A.D. 70 at the destruction of the temple, at the destruction of Jerusalem. The, this age of the Bible is now ancient history. If eternal life was a condition of the age to come, then does this mean that the New Testament saints lived in this age and didn't have eternal life? Well, he's saying they can have it in the age to come, so if they didn't live in the age to come, did they have eternal life? When did believers receive eternal life? Well, to really answer that question, we need to know what eternal life is. But first we need to understand that prior to Yeshua's messianic work, nobody went to heaven. When men died, they went to a holding place of the dead. They waited for the atoning work of Christ. And here, here's something we have to understand. When we talk about the work of Christ, I'm talking about the complete work of Christ, which was a 40-year event. We call it the Christ event. It started with His first coming. That Christ event ended with the second coming. Redemption was not complete until the second coming. A 40-year period. So those people who died, they went to a waiting place. In the Tanakh, it's called Sheol. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. And to understand eternal life, we need to understand death. And to do that, we got to go back to the beginning in Genesis and see what death really is. Genesis two fifteen and seventeen says, "Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Garden is God's temple. It's where God dwells. It's His home. It's His divine residence. He took men, man." He brought him in to fellowship with Himself in a divine residence. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Live it up. Enjoy yourself here. Have a great time. Eat whatever you want to. But, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Interesting, huh? God warned Adam regarding the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, Adam disobeyed. We all know that, right? He ate. Did he die that day? Well, not physically. He lived at least 800 years beyond that point. But God said he would die the day he ate. So if God was true, and he always is, Adam died that day. Not physically, but he died spiritually. What did God do? He put him out of the garden. Well, he brought him into his home, his fellowship, his divine residence. He brought him into holy ground and he sinned and he kicked him out of holy ground. Okay, now you're not in my presence anymore. So spiritual death is separation from God. You can't fellowship with me because of your sin. And he put him out of the temple. Look at Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not short that it cannot save, neither is his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sin separated us. Your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear. Because of man's sin, he was separated from God. He was dead in trespasses and sins. And the focus of God's plan of redemption is to restore through Yeshua what man lost in Adam. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since by a man, that's Adam, came death. Spiritual death came by Adam. By a man, that's Yeshua, also came the resurrection of the dead, and that's eternal life. Because of Adam's sin, we're all born dead, separated from God. But through Yeshua came the resurrection of the dead. Yeshua came to redeem man from death, to bring him back into the presence of God. That is resurrection. Bringing man into the presence of God, that is eternal life. Because when you're with God, you have life. When you're separated from God, you don't have life. And resurrection is not about bringing physical bodies up out of the grave. It's about restoring man to God's temple, to God's presence. To be taken out of Sheol and brought into the presence of the Lord is what the Bible calls resurrection. It's what the Bible calls eternal life. And this resurrection that brings eternal life happened at the end of the Old Covenant age. Look at John 11:24. 24. You know the story here? Lazarus died. Martha's all upset. You know, Martha said, Yeshua said, don't worry, he'll, he'll rise again. And she said, I know he'll arise again in the resurrection on the last day. The last day of what? Last day of the world? No, the last day of the age they lived in. This age. The age to come has no last days. It's an eternal covenant. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the old covenant age when the temple was destroyed. That's what Daniel said. What happened in Daniel chapter 12? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life. It's eternal life, resurrection, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, when did Daniel say this would happen? Well, if you drop down to verse 7, he says, And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for times, times, and a half time. Three and a half years. Does that sound familiar? And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people... All these events will be completed. Well, Daniel said that the shattering of these holy people, that's the destruction of Jerusalem. When that happened, all these events, including the resurrection that he just talked about a few verses earlier, would be complete. It happens at the end of the Old Covenant. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the Jewish age, the Old Covenant. We know what happened at AD 70. So to be resurrected was to be given eternal life and to be in the presence of Yahweh. We need to understand that those saints who lived in the transition period did not have salvation, justification, or eternal life in its consummated form. They lived in the already but not yet. They had the promise of it. Salvation was not completed in the lives of the first century saints. It was their hope. And you know something? You don't hope for what you have. Okay, not if you have any sense at all anyway. All right, look at Romans 13, 11, and 12. And this do, knowing the time. Boy, that's so important. You've got to know the time. All right, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is near to us when we believe. What? I thought you got salvation when you believe. He said, no, it's nearer now. What? The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. He equates their salvation with the day which was at hand, referring to the day of the Lord. The completion of redemptive history was at hand and with it would come salvation. Peter also states that their salvation was not yet complete. In 1 Peter 1, 1.5, he says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What? In the last time which would be at the end of the Old Covenant, at the resurrection. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the Jewish age, the Old Covenant age that already happened in A.D. 70. That's when the Old Covenant ended. That's when the resurrection took place. To be resurrected is to be given eternal life, to be brought into the presence of Yahweh. Now to those saints living prior to the end of the age, eternal life was not a present possession It was a hope Titus three, seven, that being justified by the grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And as I said, you don't hope for what you have. You hope and you long for things until you get them. and Then you, you hopefully just enjoy them. You don't sit around hoping for them when you have them. They had a hope of eternal life, but they didn't have it as a present possession It was something that did not come until the second coming until the Christ event was finished. It was in the age to come. So we must understand that those saints who lived in the transition period, they didn't have salvation, they didn't have justification or eternal life in its consummated form. And that's why Jude says his readers ought to be waiting anxiously. They were getting close for the mercy of the Lord unto eternal life. It was not until the age to come that they would receive that, but it was very close for them. Now since we live in what the Bible calls the age to come, we have eternal life at the moment we trust Christ for it. So Jude's instruction to be waiting for the Lord's coming, it doesn't apply to us. But the other two do. We are today to be building ourselves up in the most holy faith. It's very important that we understand that we know what we believe. We are also to be praying As we do that, dependent upon the Lord, trusting not in ourselves, not in our own abilities, but in Him. As we do these things, as we build ourselves up, as we're praying dependent upon Him, we'll keep ourselves in the love of God. As we're bathed in the Word of God. Now, in verses 22 and 23, Jude kind of switches gears a little. and He tells us how to deal with those who get caught up in apostasy. He's talking about the strength of apostasy, how many there the apostates out there. Okay, then you know that someone you know is going to get caught up in this. What does Yahweh say is our reaction to those who get caught up in it? What should we do? Should we be like Elijah and call down fire from heaven and burn them up? No. We're to show mercy. Okay? <laughs> Now, we're talking here about people you know, people you go to church with, people that you know, and they're Christians and they're doing okay, and then all of a sudden, they seem to get caught up in this. Now, commenting on verses 22 and 23, S. Lewis Johnson writes this, the next two verses probably are as difficult textually, that is, to ascertain the true text as any place in the New Testament. The difference in the various versions and all of them differ and fundamentally it's because textual critics are just like you and me they differ among themselves even evangelical textual critics and they are not sure how in the great mass of manuscript material to be sure of the precise text that these point but i say it has no doctrinal significance that i know of. so he's saying We don't even know what the exact text in these next two verses are. There's so much manuscript variance. We're not exactly sure what they say, but he says, hey, you know, it's not going to affect our faith. It's not going to ruin us. We understand what's happening here. We just don't understand sure what these verses are saying. All right. Now, the King James Version and the New King James Version have two categories of people in verse 22 and 23. But the great deal of other versions, other manuscripts deal with three groups not two. And I see three groups here, three groups of spiritually deficient individuals that he identifies. He talks about some others and some. And I think these are three different groups and they describe a progressively greater degree of involvement with apostasy. Starts out casual. They get worse and worse as you go down through the line. So let's look at these. He says, have mercy on some who are doubting. Now, the Kai here, the and, lays these duties upon the same people who are building themselves up in the most holy faith. All right, you're strengthening yourself. You also have to help others. All right? And he says we are to have mercy on some. The word mercy here, and it means to feel sympathy with the misery of another. It's sympathy which manifests itself in action, not words. If you've got mercy towards somebody, you do something. You're not sit around and feel. I feel really bad for him. No, it describes the general sense of one who has compassion for a need. He is moved to do something about it. It's a present imperative, a command calling for the mercy to be carried out habitually in their lives. As Christians, we have received mercy. We should be the first and foremost people ready to give mercy to others instead of stomping on them when things don't go the way we think they should go with them. So who do we show mercy to? Well, the New American Standard says those that are doubting. Doubters, you know, I mean, if you're in a group of people and they have an apostate comes along and he's teaching them something different than the faith and they start doubting, you know, they're like, I'm not really sure what I believe. What do we do? We're to go to them. We're to have mercy upon them. We're to deal with that. Now, here's what's interesting here. The word doubters, if you look at verse 9 of Jude where it says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, the word disputed is the same word in our text. It's the word diacrino. So Michael didn't doubt with the devil. He disputed with him. He argued. They're arguing over the body of Moses. Now, notice how Luke uses this word diacrino in Acts. He says, when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Not that they're doubting, they're debating, they're arguing. This is the same sense here. They argued with them. Now, the complete Jewish Bible translates it as disputing. Rebuke some who are disputing. All right, now you notice there that that only didn't only change the word disputing. (laughs) All right, rebuke some who are disputing. Now, we got... the. The New American says, have mercy on the doubting and other translations, rebuke the disputing. All right. So, as Johnson said, these are difficult verses. So this verse can be saying, rebuke the disputers. There seemed to be a vast difference between showing mercy and rebuking, right? Not really at all, because if you rebuke somebody, you are being merciful. That's the most merciful thing you can do is help somebody by rebuking them, by setting them straight. So I don't think there's a big divergence here. You know, whether you're having mercy, I think it, I think it is a merciful thing to reach out to somebody. If we see someone who is falling into the apostasy... We are to deal with it. We are to rebuke them or we're to go after them in mercy. Whether they're doubting or whether they're disputing, we're not to cover it over. We're not to forget about it. We're not in the spirit of the age just to be tolerant of everything that happens. Oh, just live and let live. That's what they want to believe. That's okay. No, the Scriptures say we are to go after them. It means to convict them while you dispute with them. Go and try to set them straight. And if you understand the damage that apostasy brings... That's only merciful that we go after these people. And let me just say here, you can only rebuke a disputer if you're strong in the Word of God. Because if they're getting led astray, and you don't know what you're talking about, you're not going to be much help to them, alright? That's why Jude tells us, build yourself up on your most holy faith. You've got to know the Word of God, though, so you can deal with this. This man I was talking to at the gym, you know, when I showed him the conflict that he had there, he tried to immediately come up, you know, was looking for something. First, he says, well, don't you think the Lord wants everybody to be ready? And I said, so he was just kidding back then? Because he wasn't really coming. He was deceiving him, and he goes... Ah, no, 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 no. He didn't like that option at all, you know. He goes, oh, I got one for you. It's like this. Do you believe God's sovereign? I said, absolutely. He said, do you believe in free will man? And I said, nope. And he goes, oh, what? <laughs> you know, he, he didn't quite know what to do with it. I said, no, I don't, you know. And then from there he got into, well, what's going to happen when you die? I said, I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. He goes, no, you're going to be at the judgment. And I said, well, it's funny because Romans 8.1 says there's no judgment to those who are in Christ. <laughs> He goes, well, Paul said you're going to stand before the judgment. I said, no, that's a bad translation. The word there is Bema. It's a reward platform. I'm not going to be judged. My, I'm already judged in Christ. All right. And he was, you could see the gears just turning. You know, it's like, what? What? No, no, I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm righteous. You've got to know the word of God. See, there are people in the church that are being confused by false teachers. That are there. They're leading people astray. You know, the most of the church today is being led astray. Into the health, wealth, gospel. And the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. You know, it's just everywhere we go now. People are teaching false doctrine. People are teaching that it's all about man. It's your free will. You get to do whatever you want to do. And God just sits back and says, oh, I wish I could overcome their free will. They're just too strong for me. You know? It's ridiculous. We need to point out when wrong is wrong. And that may be controversial, but it's necessary to be faithful to the truth of the Word of God. We can't just ignore error. And when we see someone we know, we've got to deal with it. Now, the meaning favored by most translations the New American, ESV, NIV they all think these individuals were doubting. All right? They're doubters. And maybe. But it just seems strange to me that Jude used the word diacrino, alright, and he, about disputing, the devil disputing with Moses. It's clearly used it as disputing, and then later to use the same exact word with a totally different meaning. That just troubles me. I, I don't think that fits the usage, you know, how a writer uses the word. But if they want to call it doubting, you know. That's the first step anyway, right? People start doubting. They, I don't know about that. I don't know about this. Well, you know, we need answers to go to these people and give them some answers from scripture. You know? How did Paul deal with those who were going into apostasy? Well, look what he says in Galatians chapter one. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul's saying, I can't believe how fast you're defecting, how you're fast, you're turning away. That's a rebuke. What is wrong with you people? However, we take verse 22. I think it's clear that he's saying we're to reach out to those in apostasy, whether we're to reach out in mercy, whether we're to reach out in rebuke, whether it's doubters or disputers. We're to go to them. We're to try to help set them straight. To put them back into the truth. Well, Jude goes on to deal with two more groups in the next verse. He says, you need to save others, snatching them out of the fire. Now, this is a little progression here. we got some doubters and disputers. Now we got some people that are in the fire. All right? They're a little bit worse off. They've gone down the road a little bit further. They're in the fire, and we have to go and we need to snatch them out of the fire. The word save here is in the present active imperative of the verb sozo, and it simply means deliver. You've got to deliver those who are in the fire. It doesn't mean save them in the sense of give them eternal life. That's not what he's talking about here. You can't do that. Only the Lord does that. It refers to delivering them from apostasy. We're to do whatever we can to get them out of the penalty that they're going to suffer if they shipwreck their faith. This phrase is a translation of the present active participle of the verb harpazo. Snatching them out of the fire. Harpazo means to seize quickly, to take them away by force, to snatch away quickly. I think that's kind of interesting. It's just you grab them. When someone's in the fire, you don't go in there and reason with them, argue with them. You grab them and you get them out of there. Now, we can't really do this, you know, to apostates. It'd be nice if we could grab them and drag them somewhere and straighten them out, okay? But, you know, we have to do what we can do. Uh, The issue here is you have to understand the intensity of it, the seriousness of of it, You've got to snatch them away before they get burned. And the fire here refers to divine judgment or divine discipline, depending on if the individual is a believer or not. Now, this imagery of snatching out of the fire comes from the Tanakh. Yahweh pictures Himself snatching Israel out of the flames in Amos 4.11. He says, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. That's interesting, isn't it? Yahweh speaking. And he says, I overthrew you as Elohim overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, didn't he do that? And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. Isn't it interesting? He says to Israel, you would have been consumed long ago if I didn't snatch you. And even though I snatched you out of the flame, you still haven't returned. That's man, right? We see the same thing in Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now remember, Satan back here in the Tanakh is not the bad guy, okay? He doesn't get that persona until the New Testament, all right? He is the accuser, and he's standing there to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand-plucked? From the fire. So here Joshua uh, is a brand. He's been plucked from the fire. Plucked from Babylon, which is burning down with the judgment of God. He's a believer. And he's been plucked out. And this is the same idea that James uses when he tells the readers in James. He says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth. Say to each other, I knew he'd never make it. I never thought he was real anyway. No, that's not what he says. He says, if someone strays from the truth and one turns him back, in other words, you're going after him, you're turning them around, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his life from death and will cover him all to the sins. You can save somebody's life by confronting them in their sin, turning them around. We're to snatch them from the destruction that sin brings. In the end of verse 23, we have group three. He says, And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. This group has moved so far from the faith that there are danger to the faithful. This group needs to be approached with great caution, with great fear. He says, have mercy with fear. You better be careful dealing with this, people. The word polluted here, spileia, it means stained, defiled, contaminated. It's only found one other place, and that's in James 3.6. six. It talks about the tongue defiling. The perfect tense describes the lasting effect of the pollution on the garment. It's stained by sin. Now, by the garment spotted by the flesh, there may be an allusion here to the garment that was worn by lepers or people with a plague. In other words, that they have infected the clothing they're in. That's what he's saying here. These people are so far off, they're, they're polluted. They're dangerous. you got to be careful. It can be infectious. He's advising extreme caution here. As Paul does in Galatians 6.1, he says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourselves so you too will not be tempted. In other words, don't get caught up in this same thing. You gotta be careful. The strong are trying to help the believers, but they gotta do it with extreme caution. And if you're not in the category of the spiritual, if you're not spiritually mature, then don't even be messing with this, okay? Because you just get yourself in trouble. And I have seen over and over believers infecting other people with false doctrine. Someone gets it. Someone starts teaching it. And then other people say, oh yeah, because they're not, they don't understand enough. And they get caught up in this. I spoke at a conference once and one of the speakers put out the most nonsense garbage I ever heard. And after the thing, I called him over and I said, you need to shut your mouth. You are doing damage to the church of God by this nonsense. And he, he turned around. A couple years later, came to me and apologized. You know, shouldn't have done that. It was not, you know, but it's damaging and we've got to take a stand against it. We can't just, you know, oh, yeah, some things you just stay away from. If you're not strong enough to handle it, because there's a lot of things out there. And listen, people, if what they're teaching didn't make some sense, nobody buy into it. If it didn't have some validity, if it didn't, you know, you, they couldn't put it together. So it looked like it was good. People wouldn't buy into it, but they string it together in such a way. And they say, look at this. So we've got to be careful. But when someone gets into apostasy, we need to go to them. We need to try to pull them back. We need to try to share the truth of the Word of God with them to redeem them. Back away, not redeem in the sense of give them eternal life, but redeem them from the judgment that's coming upon them if they progress in that way. Falling into any of these three groups, first of all, can be prevented. And that's what he said. First of all, believers, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. We need to be doing that. As we do that, we protect ourselves. But some people aren't going to be doing it. They're going to fall away. And we need to go after them to try to pull them back into fellowship. If we don't do it, who will? We have to care enough. And you try to straighten somebody out that's in error. Don't think it's going to be a popularity contest. Don't think they're going to love you. Oh, thank you so much. Depends on how, the level of their, you know, they've gotten into this thing. But you have to try. You have to do what you think is right. When Kathy and I first became Christians, we were hanging out with another couple from the church. We had become friends with them. He was out at sea. I found out while he's at sea, his wife's got a boyfriend. So I went to the elders of the church. I said, we got to do something about this. You know, I said, we need to deal with her. We need to break fellowship. We need to do whatever we got to do. And the elder said, I don't think you, I think you're being too strong. here. I think you're being too severe. I'm like, well, are you crazy or what? It was some guy at work. Well, her husband came back home and, you know, we called him together and, you know, told, you know, talk to them and said, you know, he forgave her. He said, that's okay. And I said, well, look, she, you can't let her go back to work. Oh, it's okay. We got this. I said, that is the stupidest thing I've heard. You can't let her go back to work. She's having an affair with the guy at work. Uh, It'll be all right. It was all right. She went with the guy and took off with him. and Left him high and dry. You know, but the church was like, and I remember talking to Kathy and just being grieved. It's like, the elders have lost their mind. It's like nobody wants to line up with scripture. The Bible says, do it. We got to do it. People won't, won't listen. Some people will. Some you'll save, and that's encouraging. But, like, again, if we don't do it, who will? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your grace, Lord. Lord, I pray we'd take heed this awesome word of Jude, Lord, that apostasy is a very real danger. We'd understand that, that we, Father, would keep ourselves in the love of God. We'd be building ourselves up on the most holy faith. We'd be praying in the Holy Spirit. We'd realize how frail we are, Lord, and we'd constantly be in communication with you. And Lord, for those brothers and sisters who we see fall away, give us a heart of compassion for them, Lord. May we go after them, snatching them, Lord, from the fire. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.